Welcome to Morning Commute, exploring advances in acute myeloid leukemia, frontline care of patients with FLT3 ITD. In this episode, The Molecular Landscape of FLT3 Mutations in AML, Dr. Harry Erba and Dr. Justin Watts discuss the importance of biomarker testing for FLT3 and FLT3 ITD, and the prognostic impact for these patients, especially now that there are therapies targeting these mutations. Morning Commute is developed by Projects and Knowledge, powered by Kaplan, and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Daiichi Sankyo. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash AML1. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Erba is a professor in the Department of Medicine Division of Hematologic Malignancies and Cellular Therapy at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Dr. Watts is an Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of Hematology and is Chief of the Leukemia Section at the University of Miami in Florida. I am your host, Candace Hoffman. Dr. Erba will begin the discussion. Justin, uh, thanks for joining me for the first of our podcasts on advances in acute myeloid leukemia. Let's start out our discussion talking about the PIMS-like tyrosine kinase 3, uh, known by all of us as PLIT3, and it's important as a biomarker in AML. And we're going to specifically be discussing the PLIT3 internal tandem duplication, or PLIT3-ITD. So let me set the stage. Um, PLIT3 is a receptor tyrosine kinase that is found on hematopoietic stem cells and is very important in uh, regulating the proliferation and differentiation of uh, hematopoietic uh, cells. It binds the FLT3 ligand and dimerizes, activating intracellular tyrosine kinase, then, then sets in motion a cascade of events that lead to proliferation and um, to uh, differentiation of those cells. And so it's, it's critically required for normal hematopoiesis. Now, in acute myeloid leukemia, uh, we this was one of the first genes that we actually recognized as being mutated in AML back in the day when we were doing single uh, gene PCR studies. And the first mutation that was found was an internal tandem duplication uh, that is found uh, typically in the juxtamembrane region of the protein. And so it's an in-frame insertion of uh, nucleotides. So it's always a um, multiple of three uh, number of nucleotides that are inserted usually into exon 14 or 15 uh, of the uh, FLT3 gene and will uh, disrupt an auto uh, inhibitory domain of the protein um, activating the FLT3 tyrosine kinase. We also know that there are other mutations, um, less commonly uh, the uh, FLT3 tyrosine kinase domain mutations, which actually cause the inactive conformation of the protein to fold into an active conformation and immediately activate uh, the protein. Those are less common than the FLT3 ITD, which occurs in about 25 to 30% of our AML patients, the FLT3 TKD in about 5 to 10%, depending on the registry study. 
And then finally, there are a number of other point mutations that have been found in the juxtamembrane region that are, are quite rare. Um, so those are the mutations that are uh, seen in FLT3, and it is one of the three most common mutations uh, that will be found in acute myeloid leukemia. But I guess the question, um, uh, Justin, for our audience is, why should they care? Thank you, Harry. Um, happy to be here. I look forward to this discussion. Um, FLT3, specifically the FLT3 ITD, is arguably one of the most, if not the most, discussed mutation in AML. I would say it's critically important given how common it is. As you said, the ITD in about 30, 25 to 30% of patients and a smaller fraction, maybe five to 10, having a FLT3 TKD mutation for a total of about a third of patients having this mutation. It tends to be associated with younger age, but is certainly seen in older patients. And since most patients with AML are older, there's probably more total FLT3 mutations in older adults, but it's seen across the spectrum. And historically, it was a notorious for its risk of relapse, specifically the ITD mutation, um, leading to an adverse prognosis and the recommendation for allogeneic stem cell transplantation in fit patients with a suitable donor. I think that is changing with the advent of these FLT3 inhibitors that we're going to discuss today and possibly other factors, but it's still generally an adverse risk mutation, as we'll see in the survival curves when we talk about the key phase three trials leading to the approvals of Midastar and Inclusartinib and combination with chemotherapy, the curves are improving, um, but without a FLT3 inhibitor, survival is still less than 50%. Um, even with many of those patients going to transplantation. Um, so in general, an adverse risk lesion um, with a high risk of relapse, it does respond well typically to chemotherapy and other therapeutic in interventions in terms of the risk of refractory disease, but at notorious risk um, for relapse, um, which has led to the, you know, research and discovery discoveries of, of, of some of these split three inhibitors um, that we're going to discuss today. In terms of testing for split three mutations, and I'll start and let you expand on this, this is critically important to be done at both diagnosis um, and at relapse, as these mutations can be gained or lost at relapse. Um, and it can be done either classically by PCR testing, which can detect the ITD and TKD mutations, um, or by NGS, which will, which has some advantages in that it's going to detect even more rare variants of FLT3 juxtamembrane or TKD mutations, um, and regardless of the length of the ITD, but it's usually going to take longer to get back, and getting the test back is also critically important, so a timely treatment decision can be made to start a FLT3 inhibitor as these drugs start on day eight of the induction therapy, um, but there is about a week to get the test back, even if therapy has already Started. The last thing I'll say is that even within the ITD population that is generally high risk, there are multiple factors that may affect the level of that risk, including the allelic burden, um, the length of the ITD, its location, um, other co-mutations, the clonal diversity, and when the FLT3 was acquired as an earlier late hit, possibly, um, and many other factors that we're still trying to understand. Yeah, I, I agree with all of that, Justin. Um, you know, in terms of the types of mutations, the FLT3 ITD 
uh, generally has is associated with worse prognosis. Um, and that's um, kind of tempered or uh, associated with you know, the length of the ITD, the position of the ITD, other mutations. Um, Ellie Papa Manuel has shown that in patients with NPM1 and DNA methyltransferase 3A mutations, that's where you see the greatest impact of the FLT3 ITD. The prognostic impact of the FLT3 TKD is not as clear. Nevertheless, I agree with you. It's really important to do this testing at baseline, but also if the patient has refractory or relapse disease, because now we have targeted therapies in both of those spaces for our patients. So it's, it's good to consider um, all the options um, open to our patients. Um, Justin, uh, is there any clue that you get when you see a patient with AML that suggests this patient is, is likely to have a FLT3 ITD, among, among other mutations, but what makes you think of it? In the classic patient, like you said, and they don't always present this way, of course, will be on the younger side um, and have a high leukemic burden with a high proliferative index, typically with a high white count or high doubling time. That automatically gets me suspicious for FLT3. Um, myelomonocytic or monocytic phenotypes, certain cup-like features of the nuclei, and there's certain kind of little you know, pearls that suggest NPM1 and or FLT3 mutated AML. Um, but really, it's common enough that, you know, if you test for it, you're certainly going to find it, especially in younger proliferative patients. And, it, it, you know, it's really essential that this test is done on everyone at baseline um, with AML or suspicion of AML. Yeah, I agree. The leukocytosis often is a uh, tip off that you're more likely to find an ITD uh, mutation in terms of uh, karyotypic associations, most commonly normal karyotype. But there are some notable exceptions. For example, the 6-9 translocation, 75% of those patients will have a FLT3 ITD. And important to know, um, in high-risk APL, uh, acute promyelocytic leukemia, where the white count is high, uh, you will um, often find a FLT3 ITD. Interesting, though, about the treatment of acute promyelocytic leukemia is you could still just use differentiating agents. You don't have to use FLT3 inhibitors in that situation, and you could still have a very good um, outcome. So I think we've covered how um, the FLT3 ITD um, is uh, found in about 25-30% uh, of patients associated with a poor survival. But maybe you can explain something to me, Justin. Um, recently, I thought I really understood this in that in the ELN 2017, the FLT3 uh, NPM1 uh, with no FLT3 ITD or a low allelic burden of that was associated with favorable. And then FLT3 with a high allelic burden was unfavorable. And then, you know, maybe the intermediate, I don't know, would be intermediate risk, but it seems to be all over the board. But now in the um, uh, ELN 2022, it's just all considered intermediate risk. So how did they come up with that? And do you agree with that? I think I do. It can be a bit confusing. And I think it's simpler just to think about this as an intermediate risk lesion, which I think is what it's become. Um, it's hard for me to ever call FLT3 favorable. Um, there, there may be some factors that mitigate the transplant decision if the patient's unfit, 
if it's a low ITD or TKD and there's the NPM1, or, but it's just generally not a favorable risk lesion. Um, but to call it an adverse risk lesion with the advent of minostarin and alprazartinib, when we look at the survival curves with, you know, 50% overall survival, and when you look in younger patients with resartinib, 60%, I mean, you're getting into intermediate territory for sure when you take into account transplantations involved in some of these patients. But even we see a tail on the curve in patients who achieve CR and don't go to transplant. And, you know, we're going to get there. But so I, I think that's actually a perfect call by them. It was confusing before. And I think it reflects the change in therapy between 2017 when Bridgestone published the ratified trial in 2022. Yeah, I, I agree. But, I, and again, I think uh, an important component of the more favorable prognosis is that a high number of these patients are selected uh, for allogeneic stem cell transplant and first remission. Um, and so um, I would advocate for any patient with a FLT3 ITD uh, mutated AML uh, for them to have a consultation with a uh, transplant specialist. Um, it gives them a second opinion about options. And um, maybe later later on in another podcast, we could talk about how MRD testing might um, actually impact on, on that treatment decision. But I think we have enough here uh, this morning to talk about. Um, one, of the, one of the challenges, as you said, is that you know, these patients come in often with a very high Y count, maybe in spontaneous tumor lysis. Often they have an associated DIC. They may have leukostasis. So these are the patients where we were taught you need to start treatment right away. And yet even PCR could take several days. NGS, as you said, could take longer. So how do you, what are the barriers then to getting this testing done in clinical practice and how can we overcome some of these barriers? And do you do both types of testing? So you could take those in any order. Wow. Okay. So this is a difficult question to answer in some ways, even though it may seem straightforward, because there is constant debate and back and forth over the value of time to treatment, getting patients on induction chemotherapy quickly. And we're talking about younger patients here versus waiting for molecular testing, and where's the trade-off there? What if there's a clinical trial that requires a molecular test? I think the, the advantage of the FLT3 inhibitor is you don't start it until day eight, and most PR, most PCR tests, at least, will come back within three to five days. Um, and so even if it's done the day prior to starting therapy or day of therapy, the bone marrow sampling or even a peripheral blood sample because leukocytosis could be used if that's easier at least for confirming this mutation quickly, um, it gives you some time to get it back. So usually we're able to get it back by day eight, almost always. Um, and if you start on day nine, I mean, you gotta treat the patient, right? I mean, you don't wanna get it back day 21, right? It's too late. Um, but NGS, our practice is to actually send the rapid PCR from the peripheral blood if there's leukocytosis to get that back quickly and then send the full NGS panel on the marrow. Um, that gives us a lot more information and we get that back, um, you know, a week or two later. I think there was another part to that question, but my apologies. Sorry, I hit you with a lot of questions there, you know. Uh, um, so I guess, do you do anything to temporize um, in patients, not, not only getting PCR testing that might drive this decision, but 
um, you know, core binding factor leukemias where you might want to add in gemtuzumab a little bit earlier, or if the uh, if a if they have uh, complex karyotypes where you might want to think of uh, CPX351. Um, are there any uh, tricks that you use to um, help um, you get that data, but without rushing into therapy? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, we we usually will, even in proliferate patients, you can take two or three days to do everything right and make yours make the correct treatment decision in most cases. You can use hydroxyurea liberally to get the white blood cell count down. You can prophylax for tumor lysis, and we can use to get things under control. Um, as I said, the rapid panel that we do gets us those key mutations back quickly so we can make the induction treatment decision on what to add, whether it's split 3 inhibitor, whether it's gemtuzumab, or considering CPX, um, or if they're biallelic P53 mutated, do we do something even different and consider a clinical trial or, you know, a venaza-based strategy? There's a lot of factors. So we get those, and IDH as well, we get those key mutations back quickly as well as NPM1 and CDP-alpha. Um, so we know the risk, favorable, intermediate, high, almost, you know, almost 100% certainly, not quite, you know, but, um, and um, we know what targeted therapies we could offer the patients and in some cases, clinical trials. Yeah, we do the same thing. I, I... I use hydroxyurea quite frequently in these patients who, who come in in the middle of the night. Um, I think it's important to use a real dose. Um, so uh, I empirically use two grams every um, eight hours, some of my colleagues every six hours, and you follow the white count. And every time the white count comes down by 50%, you drop the dose by 50%. Um, people worry, well, I'm going to add myelosuppression. Well, they're already going to get seven and three or something. That's, you know, you're not going to affect that. Uh, so there's really no downside. And as you know, some some of our colleagues use a flat dose of cytarabine, like a gram IV, um, although that might impact on our ability to um, put patients on a clinical trial. It is a very effective way of uh, treating these patients. Um, so I agree. I, th I think it is possible to, to temporize. Um, in general, um, especially maybe outside the purview of this talk, um, if the patient's not sick and just got admitted because they needed a transfusion or they had febrile neutropenia and you could transition to oral antibiotics, you could even wait for that NGS panel to come back. Um, uh, I know that makes a lot of people anxious, but it may give you information that helps guide uh, therapy, not only here with uh, FLT3 inhibitors, but you know other treatments that you alluded to that we now have available. So let's talk a little bit then about um, these uh, drugs that are now available to us uh, for inhibiting FLT3 and um, where they're approved and their mechanisms. So why don't I toss it over to you, Justin, to uh, start that discussion? Sure. Thanks, Harry. Um, as we said before, alluded to there, you know, there are two types of FLT3 inhibitor, uh, type 1, and type 2, type 1, inhibiting the active conformation, and type 2, binding the inactive conformation and preventing its activation, um, really just shutting it off. Um, and resartinib is a second-generation type 2 inhibitor, serafinib being a first-generation type 2 inhibitor, and uh, resartinib is probably one of the most potent FLT3 inhibitors that we have. Those only inhibit the ITG mutation, not the tyrosine kinase domain mutations because they bind the inactive 
confirmation of the receptor. Um, the two type one inhibitors that are approved include minostarin and yoltaritinib, um, which are competitive inhibitors or, or inhibitors that bind the, the, uh, the tyrosine kinase domain, um, binding the active confirmation and blocking both TKD and ITD mutations. Um, minostarin is approved in the frontline setting with chemotherapy. That's his quizartinib, and then gilteritinib approved as a monotherapy in Lulas refractory, the three mutated AML. Yeah, and you alluded to this. Uh, the uh, we talk about type one and type two, um, which actually aren't specific for FLT three inhibitors. Um, you know, this has been a debate actually in CML as well, just to you know broaden this discussion a little bit with the ABL kinase inhibitors. The type one inhibitors bind to the ATP binding site um, and inactivate the protein, and then the type two. Um, and the specific example of that one is nilotinib compared to the other four, which are type one inhibitors. So it's the same kind of principle. And what's interesting about um, a potential theoretical difference between a type one and type two inhibitor is, you know, a, a kinase does the same thing over and over again, right? It transfers phosphate from ATP to another protein. So there has to be some commonality in all of these many uh, kinases. And so one of the downsides of a type one inhibitor is it may not be quite as specific um, as a type two inhibitor, which binds the inactive conformation, which of course could doesn't need to be evolutionarily conserved. And so, you know, it, it, it could be a lot more specific. And I think that's actually true in this case, um, when you look at the specificity of the drugs that are in development for FLT3 and the ones available, the one that has the greatest specificity for what that's worth is quizartinib compared to the other two. Now, in terms of um, uh, the uh, generation, first generation, second generation, this is just a fancy way of saying first generation are drugs that people got off the shelf as kinase inhibitors and you know weren't specifically developed for FLT3 and typically have a lot of other um, targets um, that may actually potentially be important in the activity of those drugs. And maybe we'll talk about that in, in, our, in our next section on about mitostorin. Um, but then the, uh, the second generation, those are the ones that have been more rationally designed based on the structure of the, uh, of the enzyme, in this case, FLT3. Um, the other thing that distinguishes these is, um, um, is the ability to actually inhibit FLT3 itself. Remember, I started with FLT3 is important in normal hematopoiesis. And so with these inhibitors, the more potent they are against wild type or normal FLT3 or other proteins that are important in normal hematopoiesis, such as KIT, I think the more myelosuppression we should expect to see. And I think that's something that uh, we can turn our attention to when we come back to uh, these therapeutic interventions that we now have. But I think the important point that we've uh, tried to bring up here is testing for FLT3 mutations, both TKD and ITD mutations, is critically important at the time of diagnosis, at the time of relapse, because we now have FDA-approved drugs that have shown improvement in the survival of our patients compared to chemotherapy alone in both the treatment-naive patient and also the um, relapse refractory. Uh, patient. So 
we'd be doing our patients a disservice for not doing that. But as you said, we add these PLT3 inhibitors on day eight. Um, and so it gives you a little bit of time to get that PCR test back. Um, and so I, th I think uh, the next time we meet, we should uh, uh, discuss uh, the clinical evidence, the trial evidence that led to the approval of these drugs and maybe get into some uh, topics such as uh, MRD assessments and how they might drive our, our therapies. Anything you want to add before we close out? Yes, that's been a, I mean, it's been a fascinating discussion. I've, I've learned a lot. Um, I was just thinking about what you said about the ITD and TKD mutations and the unique aspects of quizartinib being an allosteric type 2 inhibitor um, and binding the inactive confirmation and really just preventing the ITD from having its adverse effects at all of autophosphorylation. And when you're binding and turning off the receptor, even the well-type receptor may be affected, as you alluded to with myelosuppression, and could that even have therapeutic effects? Um, when you're binding the TKD and ITD mutations as a type 1 or affecting both of those types of mutations as a type 1 inhibitor, like gilteritinib, it may be less specific. We, still, we see those agents even have multi-kinase activity, which may lead to off-target toxicities, but also have some therapeutic benefits, as, we, as we've seen with maybe Mimostarin and others. So I think it's a really interesting and, and fascinating how these drugs work. And I think the nuances of how they're different, how that affects potency and specificity and off-targets and so on is, is, uh, is really important to keep, to keep thinking about as we take these drugs forward in the future. Absolutely, Justin. This harkens back to about 20 years ago when we were talking about type 1 and type 2 inhibitors for ABLE and the pros and cons of those. Uh, there's no perfect... Um, uh, perfect drug uh, for these diseases, and uh, each will have its benefits and its weaknesses. And we can explore those more in the next section. So thank you for listening. Remember to receive your credit and evaluate this program. Please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash AML1. You can find all of the episodes in this series and all of our other podcasts on your favorite podcast streaming service, or download our Morning Commute app. Thank you for joining us today.